Hey everyone, welcome to episode two of Not My Forte. Uh, this is season one. Ian, here's the Beatles. Hopefully you joined us for the first episode where we covered the Beatles' first album. Uh, this one is going to cover the album with the Beatles, the single I Want to Hold Your Hand, the album Hard Day's Night, and the movie Hard Day's Night, and the single I Feel Fine. That seems like a lot. If you could hit the album A Hard Day's Night and the singles, that's probably the most required listening for this one to be a part of the discussion. Uh, but that's all the stuff we're talking about. We have an Instagram account, Not My Forte Podcast is what it's called. And we also have a Facebook page, Not My Forte with Joel and Ian. Uh, so go follow us on those platforms so that you know when we're dropping a new episode. Uh, this episode, we kind of get into our flow a little more than the last one. There's not as much exposition uh we get right into these this large amount of music and movie that we digested for this so uh without further ado enjoy episode two of not my forte Hey everybody in podcast world, this is Ian Zumbach, your host, and I'm here with my co-host, Joel Russo. This is episode two of our podcast where we're discussing the Beatles and my lack of knowledge about the Beatles, my questions about the Beatles, and I'm learning so much about them through uh, listening to their albums and and asking questions to Joel, who has a lot of knowledge about the Beatles. And we hope that for those that are lovers of their music will enjoy what we're talking about here and that people that have no entry point for the catalog of the Beatles, or the band, their history, and the context that that they had um, when they were recording, releasing this music, that this would be a very interesting walk in yeah. all things related to, yeah. to this great band. So a good intro into into the Beatles, hopefully for someone who doesn't know doesn't know their music. Yeah, this is episode two and today we're talking about we're talking about With the Beatles, which is their second studio album, and also A Hard Day's Night, which is their third studio album. We just watched A Hard Day's Night, the movie. We did. Ten minutes ago. And so we're gonna talk about that. And we have two singles to discuss as yes, well. Yes, and two singles. And we'll get into those as they come. All right. So you want to go chronologically? Let's do it. In release order? Absolutely. Cool. Um, so the way that we are doing this, uh, that we started last last episode, is Ian's going to kind of give me his raw takes on these things, and then we're going to go, and then I'll try to give them some context, and we'll talk about maybe kind of, may, we might listen through some examples and talk about it uh, as we go, so... Sounds great. Let's do it. All right. So had a lot of hot takes for with the Beatles, which is interesting because in our initial correspondence about my homework to listen to their, mm. to their to that album, yeah, uh, Hard Day's Night, and then the two singles, um, you kind of you kind of gave me permission to just kind of gloss over it a little bit and just like engage with it. But I ended up listening to it yeah. all and I actually had a lot of cool a lot of deductions from from listening. You the the first deduction was Okay, these songs are still about teenage romance and relationships. Yeah. We're not going too deep right. into 
life really at this point. It's just we are sticking with uh, love primarily. Yeah. Seems like teenage love and relationships Absolutely. and stuff. So yeah, yeah. And whether that was um, based on just where they were at as guys, or or really something that was influenced um, or encouraged by the record label or the management, yeah. who knows? But but that's that's the you're not going to get anything in terms of lyrics that exist outside of that realm of, of yeah. subject matter. It's all so, guys and girls. Guys and girls. Yep. Yeah. The uh, the second takeaway was it seemed like their harmonies were so much tighter on this mm. project. Yeah, yeah. Even though their their harmonies were fantastic on the first album and and the and the sig, uh, singles also. Yeah. It just seemed like they were even more dialed in together, which, hey. Yeah, okay. You know, I, I, that, that, that seemed to be apparent to me. And the musicianship seemed more polished to me. There was less of a, I don't want to say like a raw edge, because they didn't really seem like they like, had like a rawness to them, because they were already so pretty pretty well tight yeah. in their first release. But it seemed like the, the, the music was even a little bit tighter, which to that point, I would say that it might, the way I heard it, I was like, it's a little bit less interesting to me. Yeah. Because there's not some of those edges that were it's left. a little more polished. Left, a little bit more polished. Yeah. Little Child was really the first song on the album, though, that felt like it was similar to something that could have been on the Please Please Me album. Yeah. Because it had, like, the harmonica mm -hmm. on it. And so, to me, it felt like a little bit more of, like, a throwback to yeah. that that album. And then there, that song, Till, Till There Was You, as I was listening, that was, like, the first one that, that admittedly felt interesting to me. Yeah. And that was like six songs into the album. Yeah, yeah. So to me, like it started to make sense why you would have said, you can gloss over most of this <laughs> project because it took right, right. six songs before I was able to like really like engage with something that I thought was like. Sure. Which I say that with all due respect to the Beatles, you know, that like yeah. the greatest band of all time. Right. Um, according to what people say, right? you know, I'm sure maybe, maybe I'll get there and be a, a believer of that. Yeah. My head believes that. A believer. You know, a, be a believer. Um, a believer, but it's B-E-A-L-I-E-V-E-R. Uh, okay. okay. All right. Shout out to all those Believer. believers out there. <laughs> um, the other thing I took away was that the songs seem really short. Yeah. On that in comparison to the previous one. Yeah. Um, but I kind of preferred it because what I felt like I was seeing or experiencing was this is kind of like the advent of pop. Yeah. And like whether they realized that or not or stumbled into it, like it seemed like very intentional. Okay, we got we're gonna have two minute songs. We're gonna get in, we're gonna get out, we're gonna share the primary subject of whatever the hook is on the on the chorus and we're just gonna get to the point get quick and get out and just keep moving this thing along yeah. so i mean they're not rush you know they don't need to <laughs> write these opuses no. you know but <laughs> the other thing yeah there's no by tour in the snow dog on no, this album definitely no. not definitely not <laughs> which actually we talked in our last episode where you could see so much music branch off of um, the Beatles, right? Yeah, like yeah. Genres and things. I don't think prog rock actually does um, branch off of not what yet. the Beatles. I not mean, yet. we're... Not yet. Okay. I mean, you, oh, you okay. will, you will right. change that tune. Oh. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to name and claim it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Well, I'm excited about yeah. that. 
Um, so the other thing that really, probably my biggest takeaway from this album was that there were three songs that I knew right away were uh, Motown songs. Yeah. Um, or with exception to the Chuck Berry song. So the Mr. Postman was yeah. originally done by the Marvelettes. Mm-hmm. Rollover Be- Beethoven was by Chuck Berry. Yeah also known as the father of rock and roll. Amen. And then um, You Really Got a Hold on Me by Smokey Robinson. Yeah. So that... And then Money. Money was Money also... Money too is, I forget who did okay. that originally, but that was a, a big a big song. All right. And that was the last song on the on the album, I think. Cause that, I think so, yeah. It did, yeah. yeah. That, I got and a I chunk out of that one. last song of the first album was Twist and Shout, which is another, another well-known song that someone else wrote. Yeah. That's true. So that's true. Kind of formula there. Um, so that to me sparked two thoughts, at least yeah. for one, um, the thought of the influence actually that, that Motown yeah. and black artists had on what the Beatles did, yeah. which is very cool Huge. Like, to me. It's a, um, I mean, you hear that often that like, you know, just the degree of influence that, that black artists and, 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 you know, black music had on rock yeah. and roll and those types of things. But, I mean, just have to acknowledge that, that, that we wouldn't have music as yeah. it is without that. So what a cool thing to yeah. understand, or at least in, discover through the listening of this of this album. Absolutely, especially, yeah, on this one, Chuck Berry, Smokey Robinson, uh, Little Richard was huge, I know, mm. for them. Yeah, these were huge, these were huge parts of their musical DNA. Wow, they're gonna show up throughout their whole their whole journey. That's awesome. Um, and then the other takeaway from that, hearing hearing these cover songs, was okay. They had to get music out, right? They they've become a sensation. Yeah. Their popularity is increasing. They're but exploding. They're, but they how how quickly can they write songs and content? So <laughs> yeah, um, or at least good songs, right? right. <laughs> and and so. Obviously, the management must have made a decision to say, hey, let's cherry pick some and curate some songs from songs that maybe used to cover back in Liverpool and let's record those or discover some music and record those. Yeah. I I do wonder, like, I don't know how publishing worked back then or how people received permission to cover songs and how that may have impacted um, those other artists or writers receiving income. Like you would probably know better than I would, but I wonder how the Marvelettes or Smokey Robinson yeah, benefited benefited from those songs. Um, maybe it was just exposure, and maybe that was enough. That like the exposure yeah. of of having the respect of having such a huge band yeah. covering your music would would usher in uh, some sort of opportunity for other people to experience that music and maybe help launch their careers even more. Um, right. I, do, I don't know. I don't. I don't know because I don't have context for that. The final takeaway from this was that it's funny apart from the Motown songs and the uh, Chuck Berry song there wasn't for me there wasn't really a a memorable song on that album it just felt like a an album that had content we've got to respond to this success and get get another album out and just keep riding this wave yeah you know and that's with respect to the Beatles sure you know yeah, yeah, they're my favorite band, pretty much, and and that's the that's what I said going into it was saying, hey, 
if you don't have time to really get, get deep into this one, the next one is kind of more important. Listening to that this week, I, I think I kind of stand by that. I think it's important whenever you love something to kind of know where the, where the different pieces of it fit, as, as, if it's like a musical artist or whatever, or movies or whatever you want to talk about. Like, it's good to kind of contextualize those and say, hey, they're not all gold. They're not all incredible, world-changing things. And for me, this is – there are two – Two albums, Beatle albums like that for me. It's with the Beatles, and then it's the next one after Hard Day's Night, which is called Beatles for Sale, which is, I think, kind of uh, not ironic. I guess it's just aptly named because yeah. it feels like they're kind of, they just needed Need to get something, something to sell. Yeah. You know? And so we're going to see more covers in that way with that one as well, I believe, if I remember correctly. I get these two mixed up, though, because okay. they have that same kind of identity where it really feels like instead of them... The first album, Please Please Me, of course, it's the first album. So with, with most artists, you're going to get stuff that they've been working on for a long time. For that one, it was recorded in one day. It was already, it was what they'd been playing live. And this one, they're definitely looking for material. And then on that next one, After Hard Day's Night, it's, it definitely feels the same way. And then after that, that's a real turning point where they're going to start, the albums are going to start to take a really different feel hmm. you know in many different in just about every way actually wow. um from recording quality to songwriting quality to just the overall art- artistic vision for each one is going to ramp up pretty quickly after that next one okay so a couple things with the beatles uh just a couple dates here it was recorded between july 18th and october 23rd in 1963 so, so right longer, there, yeah, period. it's longer than one day. Right. <laughs> so what is that, three months, I guess? Hmm. And I think you're talking about how it felt more polished. I think it shows. They they would go in, they did a bunch of takes for each one, probably more overdubs, and I don't know. There, there aren't a lot of details. I was looking for some details about how they recorded this one and stuff, you know, stories behind. There's a lot more about the first album out there even than this one, which is interesting because they were getting really famous at this point. Right. Uh, but do, do you think that um, in this time period, part of the reason it took that long was because they were having to perform yeah. more? Okay. Yeah. As I've been looking at like their kind of day-to-day activities, they're going everywhere, all over Europe, and they're they're going on these tours. They're doing these kind of extended residencies, and they're coming back for like one day. And it says they worked on these songs that day, and then they left. Mm-hmm. And they came back, and they tried to do they tried this one again, and they tried this one again, and they were kind of coming back in and recutting everything again and again. I don't know which ones. I don't even know which ones they kind of got in one take, or which ones they got in a lot of takes. There just aren't. I'm sure if I really dug into it, I might be able to find those those details. But they're not as readily available. And I think it's just because, again, it was kind of it was just a logistical thing. Like they had to get music out, and so kind of the legend of it doesn't loom very large compared mm-hmm. to these other albums that it's sandwiched in between. It was released November second, nineteen sixty three. So finished in October. Yeah, mastered and they put it out that quick, huh? Mm-hmm. Wow. Because th- there's a couple things at stake here. One, if you're a history buff, you may know November 22nd, 1963 is a very big day. It was the day that Kennedy was assassinated. Wow. So I'm sure there's some conspiracies uh, with that, that someone's chased down. We talked about conspiracy theories last time and how we will not be going down those rabbit holes. All of these, the turnaround was really quick because this was, they were burning so hot, they're printing their own money. And so they, 
when with these albums so as soon as they could come up with anything they were putting it out as soon as humanly possible and at that point they still hadn't visited america right correct okay and so they're sending how how is this working like are they are they producing these albums and sending them over mm -hmm. and they're different versions okay different sometimes different cover art different uh usually i think a a month or two generally behind so us gets it releases in uk first yeah comes over to U.S. two months later. Yeah, I'm, yeah I, I didn't really write down the U.S. releases from mm-hmm. this point onward. I did in the last episode. But yeah, just assume that they're going to come out like two months later. a little bit later. Okay, as cool. they get As they go on, probably that gap because commerce is changing, communications are changing and evolving, probably that gap shortens uh, by, the, by the end of their careers. But yeah, at this point, the recording industry was pretty different and distribution was really different. And so, yeah, it was a few months, a couple months, and pretty much the same. Some of the track listings were a little bit different. The same thing with the singles. Some of the B-sides were different okay. in, the, in the U.S. Uh, but yeah, at this point, She Loves You was the, the, the big thing for the U.S. That was like... That caught on. So at this point, when they're making this, they already are rising to prominence in the U.S. as well. Gotcha. Maybe not the same fever pitch as in the U.K., but it's it's, it's steadily to percolate. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, they haven't been there. They're gonna go there in I believe it's Jan- February of the next okay. year. February '64 is when this this all kind of goes down. So after the release of this album, are they gonna plan on releasing singles again, or or is it another yes. album? So we'll, I'm going to jump ahead for one second, but I Want to Hold Your Hand actually comes out seven days after this. After this album? After this album drops. Oh, there is wow. A, I, I double-checked this several times. When I, was, I was like, that can't be right. Golly. So they dropped this whole album, mm-hmm. and after they had recorded this, they recorded I Want to Hold Your Hand, and it, I, I imagine it was just that everybody who heard I Want to Hold Your Hand knew that it was going to be huge. Excuse my language, what a badass move that was by the Beatles. I know. Yeah, like just to be like, yeah, I know we just gave you 14 songs. Here's another one. Wow. It's going to be the biggest hit in the history of music. totally do that. (laughs) Follow that model. Yeah, I know. It's the opposite of the model nowadays, which is that you do a single, a single, a single, and then eventually you'll turn those singles into an album, and there might be one or two songs in there that they haven't heard yet. Right. Yeah, this one, no. Man. They're like, hope you like the Beatles, because... There's, we got more of it. Man, take note of that, musicians. Yeah. <laughs> this is a revolution. Yeah. Another thing that's interesting about this album, and maybe because you know we're talking about the quality of it and how it might not be super memorable, none of the 14 tracks were released as singles in the UK, hmm. at least during the length of this album, and probably had something to do with that, the fact that there was such a short gap between this and I Want to Hold Your Hand. It seems like at this point, they were they whatever was newest was the thing. And they were just making it and putting it out. None of them are singles. And then it's released on November 22nd. Um, I want to get to that pub, the publishing question. I do think at this stage, their recording contract with George Martin, their producer, if I'm not mistaken, it was a lot more institutional back then. Everything was kind of included. So whoever was recording you was the one who was kind of handling your publishing and your rights and that kind of thing. And... Almost had like a manager feel to it. I see. So much more hands-on than it is nowadays. And so I think when it came to covering songs, I imagine that George Martin and the other people at his at his label would handle that and that they wouldn't have to like reach out or whatever. It would all be kind of handled publisher to publisher. 
because that happened a lot. So one thing we, we, we wanted to really save it for the podcast, but one thing I kind of said while we were watching the movie is that the Beatles were a huge shift in music from songs that were written and were performed by different people yeah. to now people writing and recording the songs as themselves. And so publishing was a, a different animal back then. Finding ways to get the rights to the writers and, and from the writers to perform the songs was just, every song was that. That's amazing, like to think, yeah. think about that. You, I mean, you, I, it blew my mind. I didn't never really thought about that when, yeah. you, when you brought it up. The Beatles mm-hmm. and Bob Dylan are the guys that are yeah. writing their own songs and performing them. And right. I guess that, that really makes much more sense now yeah. as someone that observes other people elevating these, the Beatles or Bob Dylan yeah. as some of the most iconic and important musical right. contributors to, right. to musical history in the past 100 years. And that makes so much sense to hear that, that fact. Now, I will say this. You, you talked about black music of the, like the 40s and 50s really influencing them. I'm talking mostly about kind of white pop music. Mm-hmm. Those, a lot of those songs, like, like Burt Bacharach, I think he had a, one of the songs off the last, I think it was The Taste of Honey. I think that was, he wrote that song. Okay. But that was in that model. But like we're talking about Little Richard, Chuck Berry, Smokey Robinson. These are people that wrote their own songs. But Smokey Robinson was an incredibly prolific writer who wrote for everybody. Gotcha. So he he was a hugely successful songwriter on top of his own thing with the miracles. And I don't know if you know this, but I, I wonder what the sentiment was like. And, and just just as a sidebar, mm. you know, were were these artists, the black these black artists, feeling appreciative of the fact that these mm. songs were being covered and shared, or did did it feel like they were being somewhat uh, gate gatekept, you know, or like yeah. marginalized? Like mm. I don't know the answer to that question. Obviously, we know, yeah, you know, historically that that obviously a black community has had a much harder uphill battle to to yeah, gain prominence yeah. in just about everything. So is this how does how does this yeah. affect that? You know? Yeah, I I it definitely you know I'm not the one to speak on it, but I I have heard plenty of people of the people from back then you know talk about it and how it, it was frustrating and how I've heard those conflicting stories. People saying that they had both of those things in their hearts to say like, on one hand I'm making money from this. Hopefully they're making. They probably weren't making as much money as they deserved. Right. Uh, and I'm getting more well known for this. But I mean, the big thing I remember was with Elvis. So this happened, you know, maybe like ten years before. Yeah, this. maybe eight, okay. eight or ten years okay. earlier, where there would be these songs that Sam Phillips would notice that these songs, like uh, Teddy Bear, I believe, some of these song big songs that Elvis cut, and they were initially by black artists, and then. Elvis would cut it, and it would be a massive hit, and that that was always a, a point of contention for sure. Like and so the money just, wouldn't wouldn't go back to the original artist, and any sort of compensation, Elvis would just kind of do it. It gets murky. It, there's so many different things involved, and there's so many different ways of of songs coming together. And and publishing was kind of the wild west back then. It was mm-hmm. there weren't a lot of rules, and certainly that that you know institutional racism definitely was getting in the way of that at every level, I'm sure. Wow. But 
yeah, that was con- a constant thing. I think even up through, you know, Zeppelin. Zeppelin was sure. playing all these John Lee Hooker songs and like all these old blues songs and a lot of them they ripped off. Like Zeppelin wouldn't be able to do a lot of stuff. People have said Zeppelin wouldn't be able to do some of those early albums nowadays because they're pretty much just ripping off these older blues artists and kind of changing a couple words, if that, and then no one no one said boo. Sad, man. Yeah. That's a bummer. But, I mean, with these ones, at least, I mean, looking at the bright side, it's very clear to us, at, at least at this point, who wrote these songs. and Sure. And especially that... We know Smokey Robinson and Chuck Berry certainly have their place as absolute icons, icons for in sure. our musical history. Yeah. So, well, um, I'm sure that there's there are a lot more that we don't know that yeah. didn't get credit. But and it makes much more sense to me why Chuck D would say what he said about Elvis now in one of his songs. So thank <laughs> yeah. you for giving me that. Absolutely, little <laughs> yes. Uh, the so they got the covers. So we had, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six. Okay. Six covers on this album. Till There Was You, Please Mr. Postman, Roll Over Beethoven, You Really Got a Hold on Me, Devil in Her Heart, and Money, That's What I Want. Uh, and then we have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight originals. So we're, we've got almost half covers. Now, again, with the possible exception of Beatles for Sale, we will never, ever get back to even close to this percentage, this ratio of originals to covers, uh, Hard Day's Night will be all originals. Oh, wow. I did not know that. Yeah. Okay. And from that point moving on, I think there will be a couple maybe from, from album to album, but it will be overwhelmingly original material from this point on. So this is really kind of the last of these where you, where we have a lot of be- you know, Beatles kind of making other artists' songs famous. Mm-hmm. And again, it just shows how the industry was changing mm-hmm. and how they were setting a new standard for kind of between the old show business and the new show business kind of, or old music stars to new music stars, where at first, you know, it used to not matter at all who wrote the songs Mm. and who performed them. And now it's, now there's a prestige involved. Oh, this is Lennon McCartney. This is George Harrison. This is Bob Dylan. This is whoever. Now it's a big deal. That's very cool. Yeah. And... On top of that, like the, some of those artists that maybe uh, would have been marginalized in earlier decades, now that there is a precedent for this, th- those artists that can rise to prominence that ha- you know that are performing their own songs and everyone knows it, uh, now post Beatles, they might get more credit. Now that now that when they're kind of born into that that ecosystem, the musical ecosystem, mm. now it's expected almost more. It's expected, oh, that you wrote that or that you're you're responsible for the quality of the songs that you are performing. So that gap is closing rapidly, I think, at this point. Again, it had already started. Mm-hmm. Chuck Berry wrote pretty much all of his biggest hits. And Smokey Robinson, like I said, and Little Richard, th- these guys, yeah, they had already started it. But at this point, this is the the kind of white pop music market was so much more massive, especially at this point, it's, it's worldwide. This is now expanding all to, to like a global thing. It's on such a big level that now it makes a bigger impact that they're writing their own songs. I think we should note to the listener that as we as we're going through this process, as I'm learning about the Beatles, yeah. we are talking about a genesis of something that is mm. very important for 
all the all the music that comes after after this mall, yeah. after this band. Yeah, it's a. I mean, it's a big deal. I think about other bands that were kind of playing. I think if you looked at their contemporaries, the other pop bands and the other big acts at that point, this is a. They're, they're really different. There's a, there's certainly a before and after. Now that being said, nowadays with pop music, there are tons of writers on a lot of songs. And that definitely hasn't gone away. The, the the art and craft of crafting a pop song that someone else is going to sing, but at the very least, normally now the the artist is usually involved uh, for for a lot of the big songs. Sure. And it's much much less common that you would have a great song that a songwriter who's just a songwriter would write, and then a very well known artist would then perform. That well known artist is usually going to have their name on it. Wow. So originals, it won't be long. All I've got to do, all my loving, don't bother me, which is the first George Harrison composition that that he sings and he wrote, uh, is on this one. Little child, hold me tight. I want to be your man. Uh, the next Ringo song that he that he sings, and not a second time. Uh, I think for me, all my loving of the originals, at least, because I agree that I think till there was you, that one always stuck with me when I was a kid. That it's, a, it's just a great recording and a great version of that song. I believe that's from, it's from a musical. Is it hmm. Music Man? Listeners, correct me. Just kidding. This will be out so much yeah. later. Um, <laughs> but these other ones, these other ones are kind of rock and roll numbers and, and R&B stuff. All My Loving for me is a re, is an absolute classic Beatles. And when I think about to like the early stuff, it's, it's on there. It's on that kind of Mount Rushmore of their first few years. And other than that, like, it's okay. I know these songs pretty well because yeah. I listened to them so many times, but, you know, I'm, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not writing home about them, except for All My Loving, because that one has some really interesting pieces to it. There's this kind of, this triplet thing on the guitar where uh-huh. John goes... Well, do you want to play it for the listeners for a second, yeah. actually? His, his bass sound... It's so cool. There's like no yeah. sustain to it, really. It's just it's like plucked. Just, yeah. yeah, he uses a pick wow. most of the time. This is a song where the ryth- John's rhythm guitar really kind of provides, I think, a lot of the more iconic moments. Mm. Pretty good solo by George, too. Their solos are really short, which yeah. is cool. In and out. And, of course, that two-par harmony. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that one... That's really iconic for me. Mm-hmm. I'm like that 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 really personifies this time in their career just as much as anything on Hard Day's Night does. But other than that, I'm like, yeah, the covers, the covers are pretty good on this album. And I think I think that's kind of the biggest takeaway as far as appreciating it. Yes. <laughs> well, let's move on to this next single. Yeah. I want to hold your hand. Man. I knew as soon as I heard it. Mm-hmm. I was like, "Oh, this is the Ed Sullivan moment. Mm-hmm. Like, and when I listened to it, it sounds like a funny illustration, but I had this thought of like in professional wrestling, right? There's this term that they say, we're gonna put, we're gonna put this guy over, right? Yeah. It's gonna like yeah. make this guy a superstar, right? And like I had this idea, this thought of when Andre the Giant let Hulk Hogan <laughs> yeah. body slam him in WrestleMania three, and that was that was when Hogan went over and became the world's biggest professional wrestler. Yeah. This song, when I heard it, I was like, oh, okay, Ed Sullivan put them over 
in the United States, and this was the perfect song yeah. for it. Huge. Yeah, this is the this is the moment. I remember last episode you asked, you were like, is, was there one of these cinematic kind of moments like that? And it, this is it. Uh, I believe that this is why they released it a week after the album was out. That, like, everybody, this one you can find a lot about, just people's reactions to, and everybody from, I think it was like, they said Bob Dylan, Brian Wilson, all these people that would go on to, to help define the 60s, they all said the same thing about this, where they said, when we listened to this, when I heard this for the first time, I was like, everything has changed. Hmm. This is what it's going to be like from now on. And it's it's hard to hear, it's hard to really internalize that from a 2022 standpoint, because it's hard to hear what's so different between she loves you and I want to hold your hand. But I think it must have been an incredible cultural moment for so many people to feel that way. Yeah. And it's hard to even... Like for like you said, how do we contextualize it? Because we don't, we weren't living in it. But there's something so special about it. It's yeah. undeniable. You you hear it and you're like, oh wow, I feel like I've heard this song right. a hundred times already. And I think that's actually something that's really amazing about the songs to stand out about them is there's already mm. a familiarity built into the songs that are the hits. Yeah. even though you've never heard them before. And I can't figure out what that X factor actually is. Or mm. I don't know what... I don't because know. you didn't really grow up listening to him? Well, not just that, just like the familiarity of a song you've never heard before, yeah. right? That yeah. becomes a hit. Like there's something on that that's special, that's an immeasurable. It's just like yeah. this X factor. And they had it over and over mm -hmm. and over again. And this song... It seems like it typifies the all the best parts of what's already come before in their careers, and they made yeah. this amalgam of mm -hmm. of all the right recipes, of all the right things, of everything that they did, and added some claps in, in the in the <laughs> yeah. rhythm too, to just make this thing yeah what it is, and it's it's um it was really special. We're gonna listen through that and have some notes, perhaps. Notice how this is the intro, right here. Oh man! Oh no no! So yeah, the beginning of the song is yeah. What a great callback to that part. Yeah, that's you know, good arranging. Oh man! You know what I think? That, as I'm listening to it again. I think it was so special about this, and I didn't pick up it on pick up on it the first time. Yeah, every girl that heard this song, right, probably thought, "My hand, my hand, John, <laughs> my hand, Paul." Yeah. How friggin' amazing yeah. is that, right? Mm. Did that? Did they do that on purpose? Were they that brilliant, like on an IQ level of Einstein as musicians and writers? Maybe, or did they? Was it just like yeah, it's just serendipitous, you know? I think it's intimate. Yeah. I think it's 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 speaking directly to someone in a way that she loves you, same kind of thing. And that's not guy to girl, that's guy to guy about a girl. Right. But in the same way, it's it's talking about things in a way that's very kind of direct. And it's not using super flowery language necessarily. It's saying I mean it it is, it gets kind of poetic, especially in the B section, but 
is just talking directly to a girl in a way that probably I would assume people in the 60s, teenagers, that's how the, they were saying it in the language that they'd be using. So in that way, it does feel very kind of like conversational, immediate, and intimate that for a girl who's like, who's obsessed with them and pining over the Beatles and has her favorite Beatle and everything, that had to have been just a shot to the heart. Man, Every please time be me, it. right? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and we know, I mean, we just watched Hard Day's Night. Like, yeah, clearly that <laughs> landed <laughs> all sure over the did. place. Yeah, and broke some ankles in the process. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely broke yeah. some ankles. It broke some ankles, like more ankles than Allen Iverson. Let's just say that. Yeah, you know let's what I mean? say that. Jonah would love that <laughs> reference, by the way. Nice. Oh, man. <laughs> Shout out to Ian's son, Jonah. Yeah. So did they break more ankles or break more hearts? Oh, I don't know. Who knows on that? Alan Iverson broke my heart when he oh, when man. he didn't play as long as he could have. Yeah, me too. Um, <laughs> True story, actually. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, that, okay, so a couple of things about this. This was recorded on October 17th. They did 17 takes in one day. Mm. I, I don't know if they'd use the, the last one, but they, I know it took them that many. Uh, they just ran it again and again and again. As far as I can tell, there are no overdubs. Mm. Um, listening to it, there may have, they may have recorded the vocals separately, but um, I don't hear anything doubled or, you know, or, no. or put over it. No. It was released, uh, as I said, seven days after the other one, so November 29th. Okay. 1963, uh, this was the first Beatles record to be recorded on four-track equipment. And an interesting note about this is that Abbey Road was kind of, be uh, I believe at the time it was still called EMI Recording or whatever it was, Studios. At the time, um, American Studios, for example, like all, all of the kind of the more well-known ones, they had already switched to four-track like several years prior. Four-track so, like tape? Or yes. Like, sorry. Okay. Yes. All right. All right. Okay. So that so at before it was either you'd have like one track you'd have one tape machine. Yeah. And you'd record everything onto that, and then you'd have two. You'd have a second tape machine that you could record kind of dubs onto, and that's a big studio. That's like a super professional studio would have a second tape machine, and they could kind of manipulate it. They'd use that same tape machine for like delays and echoes, those kind of things. Mm -hmm. uh, Amazing. Yeah, it was kind of wow. one piece. But what's crazy is like, I'll bring it back to Sam Phillips because a couple years ago I read his uh, biography. It, yeah, a whole separate tape machine just for echo. So you'd have your tape machine that you recorded everybody onto through your mixing board and then put it down to either one or two channels. And then if you wanted delay, you had to buy an entire other one. And then, of course, they could they got better and better with overdubbing. So being able to like use that, go bounce them back and forth, and add more and more things to it. Like we talked about last time, George Martin added a couple things to please please me. Mm. After the fact, he had a couple little sweetening right. pieces. But yeah, four tracks really changes the game because now you can say, okay, our drums are on this one, our vocals are on this one. Our bases on this one, we can pan stuff. We can, and then you, then you'd leave one open usually for for overdub. So being able to, we, and then you, you'd bounce those other ones down to maybe two because again, we have to think about stereo, and so all all that stuff, you know, going from one 
or two whole tape machines to a tape machine that is four tracks was was a massive leap. And you can kind of tell there's definitely more separation in this. When you listen to Please Please Me, I mean, it's everybody, it sounds like everybody singing in a one mic playing in one room, even sure. if it's not, because it's basically what was going on. And this one, even if they were playing all playing at the same time, they were able to isolate each source so much better and mix it together in a much more kind of like immaculate it's a more convenient way, way to like yes. really draw out each. Yeah, I, isolate, isolate, and mix it together. Mm-hmm. Right. Actually, to that point, if we could just take maybe one minute for yeah. our listeners that aren't really fully knowledgeable yeah. about recording mm. terms, right? We talked about panning, right? Yeah. Um, or or stereo. Can we just just quickly? Can you explain yeah. to our listeners what, what that sure. actually means? So when you ha- when you put on a pair of headphones, or you're listening to like your car speakers or any stereo, even your iPhone now usually will use two different speakers to create a stereo image. What that means is we have a right ear and a left ear, and everything every piece of music that you listen to pretty much nowadays. Uh, is created in stereo versus mono, meaning that there are two channels, what comes out of the right speaker, what comes out of the left speaker. And if something sounds like it's right in the middle, like if you're listening to, in, if you have your, your earbuds in and you hear the lead vocal and it feels like it's right in the middle, that means that it's in both ears as much. Um, but what that means is you need two tracks, you need two channels on your on your tape, where they're recording it to tape, uh, to make that happen. So uh, back in the day when they were using, when, again, when these, the advent of this technology, it was a, it was a kind of a big pain or, or a big deal to get that, to get that kind of separation. But what it, it meant was that you could have drums on your left, you could have everyone on your right. Nowadays, listening to those, it seems a little weird because we're used to kind of having drums right up the middle now because it feels better when we're because we've gotten li- used to listening to headphones and in the car and that kind of thing. Sure, um, but yeah, stereo uh, panning is means yeah left or right. So when you you can record something and then using your mixing board, uh, you can you can either send it to the right more to the right or more to the left. Classic recordings, I would listen to anything by Jimi Hendrix. He did a lot of creative stuff in the studio with panning where he would have his guitar part feels like it's kind of swirling around your head. Right. And right. a lot a lot of those kind of psychedelic psychedelic stuff used this stereo imaging uh, to great effect, to make you feel like you were on LSD, basically. Right. It can be a little discombobulating for sure, especially when it's really going. All <laughs> you can tell that they're just like twisting that knob as fast as it goes. Right. Uh, but With yeah, that's stereo. That was, uh, I believe, Please Please Me was, was it in mono? Their first song, I think, was in mono. Uh, but whatever the case, it's it's a big, it was happening at this time where it was kind of becoming standard where everything was everything was stereo and like i said nowadays it's a foregone conclusion you had a left and a right right and that's it unless you're jack white right yeah there's still purists yeah. who definitely who and we still do, i mean when i'm mixing stuff i listen to it on mono often because it's it's good to kind of second guess yourself in that way to turn that stereo stereo off and then just get mono so yeah I could talk forever about that, but that's yeah. basically, does that sound? It does. F- Thank you for that explanation yeah. for sure. <laughs> Actually. I want to hold your hand. Just some crazy things about this. Uh, it unseated She Loves You as the number one single in the UK. So She Loves You, She Loves You had been kind of leapfrogged by another song, and then it had come back 
for a second stint as the number one single in the UK. That's amazing. And then it was unseated by this song, and it stayed number one for five weeks, and it stayed in the top five for an absurd amount of time. This is the first of seven Beatles songs to reach number one in the U.S. in 1964. I need to process it again. (laughs) Say that again, please. So... I believe it's Lennon McCartney songs. There, there may have been another Lennon McCartney song that that got in there as well. But I, I, I looked it up, and it's from what I can tell, this is the fact. It's the first of seven Lennon McCartney songs that were recorded by the Beatles to reach number one in the U.S. in 1964. And the reason I say Lennon McCartney is because they were the writers. So it's the that's never happened. Wow. Before or since, where this the songs with the same writer or writers. Seven of them in one calendar year. That's number one, and that's a one-time in history thing. Yeah, it's never happened since then. I mean, and nowadays is a perfect it, number, right? That's <laughs> right. So I mean, nowadays that might happen. You might get two or three. Wow, but number one hits. I mean, that's that's amazing. Yeah, so this is the wow. first one. This is the first one of of sixty four because this would reach number one at the beginning of nineteen sixty four in the U.S. Wild craziness. Yeah, that yeah that intro. We were just listening to that intro, like, s- such a great, like, signature. Bum, 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 dum, dum, bum, dum, dum. It's, it's syncopated. It's got a lot of energy to it. And they're just, I mean, their harmonies are, are really starting to blossom. This, especially there's that one part where it's, it goes, I want to hold your, your. They split. They go, I want to hold. They sing that in unison. Uh-huh. And then they split, they into, split the, into the harmony. Hold your hand. And the other one's going, hand. Man. And like that, that's the kind of stuff that, that's creativity. They didn't start doing harmonies. They started in unison and they broke off to do the, you know, that, that's, that's the kind of, that's really a signature Beatles thing of jumping into singing either unisons or octaves and then breaking up. They, they so comfortably switched between these kind of different singing styles. They're really agile with their ability to sing with each other. And that was that's huge. So this seems like the advent of that for sure. This is like the the one of the biggest first like indicators. Oh, this is a huge part of their style. And we're mm. going to see a lot more of it coming, coming up. Man. Brings us to A Hard Day's Night. All right. The album... And the movie. And the movie. But we'll talk about the album first, right? Yeah, let's do album first. Okay. All right, so here's my hot takes from that. So to me, right out of the gate, when I was listening to it, it was it was already, I was like, okay, this first song is is, is already better than the whole last album, <laughs> actually. The song, A Hard Which, Day's Night. A Hard Day's Night, yeah. right? So, yeah. and their portrayal of love, it felt like a little bit more mature, right? As a listener, it did, you know? Mm-hmm. When I see the movie... Not so much, but like as as a listener, first time, I'm like, oh, these guys are starting to like gain life experience. You know, it's yeah. been a hard day's night. Right. I've been working like a dog, right? That's yeah. I was like, I can relate to that, Paul and John. So so that right off the bat, he's still talking about coming home to his to his baby or whatever. Right, right. But, but like, um, she's gonna make him feel all right. Exactly, yeah. and he. After, you know, and then he'll sleep like a log, I think is the lyric, right? I or, should be sleeping like I a log. I should be sleeping yeah, like a yeah. log. Okay. That that right off the bat, like great song, great intro. Like I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm, I'm I'm invested in this listening experience. The other thing that I took away was 
the lyrical content, like there's only so many different ways you can sing about love and what's going on with like your relationships yeah. and those kinds of things. Yeah. There were two songs on there that were about two-timing, right? Or yeah. like they were in some yeah. interesting situations that sounded if like. If I Fell. I, I didn't write down the names of those songs, okay. but, but I think I, If I Fell is definitely one of them. Yeah. I'm thinking to myself, like, are they deriving inspiration from the fact right. that they're like yeah. having girlfriends in different cities and yep. now they're twisted up in some situation, but inspired new songs and new content, you know? It wasn't endorsing it. It was just more like... Yeah, it's what they were living. That's what we're in. Yeah. Oh, man, I hope hope it's okay if I fall in love with you because I'm already in love with her. Like, like oh, yeah. being straight up and honest. John, John was married very, very young. Oh, really? And okay. he was already married at this point. In fact, there was a point where him slash other like people in their management didn't want the general public to know her name was Cynthia, and they got married, and then he immediately got world famous. Mm-hmm. And it felt like maybe it, was, it wasn't part of the agreement. It wasn't their plan for their marriage was for him to get world famous. Wow. You know? The other guys, they had steady girlfriends, I think, uh, or at least a couple of them did at this point, and the sa- same thing happened where, yeah, they, they had a girlfriend, and all of a sudden they're the fam- most famous people in the world, mm-hmm. and their relationships got really stretch because of that. Sorry, sure. go ahead. No, Keep no, going. that's a great, it's a great fact. So did John, just as a side note, how quickly after this worldwide fame took place did John's marriage dissolve? Did it hang on for a while? Or? A long while. No till kidding. Till uh, Yoko, till I think 69. So were there children that were? Yeah, I believe Julian Lennon is the, his oldest son. Uh, I'm wondering, so the other takeaway was, and I love her, Mm-hmm. Is that the first time the Beatles incorporate acoustic into their into their catalog of music? It seemed like it did to me. Um, I know that it made a reappearance on the song "I'll Be Back," but yeah, um, but I, it was such a actually for me as a listener, I was like, oh, this is such a breath of fresh air. It's primarily yeah. been electric, and now I'm hearing some acoustic incorporated into into their songs. This is a really nice feature. Yeah, you know? I think um, if I had to guess, I'd say there's probably a part or two in these first two albums where there's some acoustic guitar. My first instinct, though, is that they were a live rock and roll band and there's just there's no room for acoustic guitar in 1963 for a, a live rock and roll band. Sure. So this, I know what you mean, even if it's not the first time, when you hear that great kind of nylon, nylon string, string yeah. solos Solo, that yeah. go on through it, yeah, it's very prominent and you really notice it because they're able to... Isolate it, and but yeah, it's definitely it definitely catches your ear if you've been listening up to this point. You're like, oh, that's definitely a new texture. Sure, and that as I was listening to that, I was thinking, oh, this is like a predecessor of pointing towards something that comes much more into their future as a yeah, studio guitar studio group. Yeah, yeah, that was a cool part of listening to this. It's like you're, yeah. as we're doing it this way, we're discovering on this journey. Yeah. Oh, here's a lot of stuff that's pointing to things that'll. Mm-hmm. Come in the future, yeah. As 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 a band, and um, absolutely, and so that was one of those moments for me. There were more guitar solos I noticed on this one, which I thought mm. was pretty cool. It seemed like, yeah, um, maybe to your point, because they were able to isolate it more, it, <laughs> give it more it, takes. It, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But I thought the guitar solos had improved, and yeah. the melodies were more memorable. And George Harrison's guitar work was. Yeah, better than it had been in in, in the previous yeah. previous albums. He's definitely growing a lot, maybe more than anyone. 
mm. from like when they first started to this point. You can definitely tell the difference in his playing. Right. Uh, another takeaway was I'll Cry Instead felt like an old country song to me. Like there was like almost <laughs> like some like bluegrassy old country style feels to it. And, and yeah. I didn't, I have no idea when country music started. So, and and for listeners that are lovers of country music, please forgive me for that. It was already a thing. It was already a thing. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, but that to me just showed the diversity and the talent, the musical talent of this band yeah. that they could that they could hear something, they could understand basically the fundamentals of a style, right? Like, yeah. oh, this guy's doing that on that to that scale. Yeah. That, that we can bring it into this arena of genre influence, you know, to let our yeah. to bring that aspect into our into our songs. Sure. And we can nail it. Man, that's yeah. I'm sure a lot of it was based on their residencies and in, in England when they were doing that sort of stuff. But man, yeah. that to me just said like these guys just were so understanding and knowledgeable about these hmm. closed-fisted components about music and theory and those types of things. I don't know if that's yeah. true, but if they were doing it day in and day out, they were mm -hmm. clearly learning while they were doing yeah. it. And and that that that's what that song like informed me. Yeah, about. and I love her and I'll Cry Instead, those being just different genres that it's not like they became that band or really did a lot of stuff in that way but you can see that they're just broadening sure from what they've done in the in the first two um the songs the song uh things we said today that also dovetails to the thing that we yep. were just talking about that's not going to be a commercial hit but it well maybe it was i don't know you got to tell me but to me yeah. it was like oh you know i could hear simon and garfunkel singing right. this song and then and you can't do that. Man. Right. On that, that tune, all I could think was, man, if Will Ferrell needed inspiration for his SNL more cowbell skit, this is the <laughs> tune right here um, that precluded. Everybody's green. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Somebody was rocking that <laughs> thing. So Blue Oyster Cult has this song to thank. For for the inclusion of a of a cowbell, you know? that's a great vocal performance too. Yeah. It reminds me kind of twist and shout at the end. His voice is just pretty ragged, rugged, yeah. And oh, please listen to me if you want to say my. Yeah, he's really like giving it everything. I love that part, yeah. and that's I love that about them. They those yeah. guys really let it rip. They did, especially sure. John. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I, I've always that one's always stuck with me when I was a kid. I grew up in the 90s, and I. it's funny because I did, but what I didn't grow up with was, you know, Nirvana and Pearl Jam and Jane's Addiction or whatever, mm -hmm. uh, just because my parents didn't really let me listen to that kind of music. Sure. And so when I was, when I was like 10 and 11 and 12, I knew I liked rock and roll, but I didn't even know that that stuff was really out there. Mm -hmm. I kind of did. I heard versions of it, but I wasn't really going to that. So when I heard songs like You Can't Do That or Hard Day's Night, for me that was pretty rock and roll. And I, I, I feel like that was a, a unique way that I got to kind of experience this stuff that a lot of people probably were, if they had heard Smells Like Teen Spirit, mm. first, this seems pretty anemic right. comparatively, but... But it's like a Hubble telescope looking into the galaxy <laughs> yeah. of like rock and roll to be yeah. discovered. Absolutely. You know, so I would sometimes skip through the albums if I 
Like I remember listening to this album and I really wanted to hear those like rock songs. And so for me, I got to experience that as an aggressive. That's amazing. (laughs) I mean, that's cool. I mean, that is such a cool way because actually that contextually, that's probably what the people that were hearing at that time feeling too. Like, this is aggro. I'm going to drive 10 miles faster listening to this tune. Twist and shout, man. Right. I mean, that was, for me, that was it. That was like, that's like that was stage stuff. dive stuff yeah, right there. exactly. Kind of is, it actually. Is? Yeah. I mean, yeah. if you listen to it even now, it's pretty. Yeah. It's a, <laughs> yeah, if somebody played that like that now, you'd still be like, all right, these guys are kind of going for it. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. So the only uh, criticism, I guess, I yeah. have about it, and I don't think it's, I don't even think it's a criticism. I did notice that like the lyrical content, there was a few times when I was listening mm-hmm. to the lyrics, I was like, didn't they already say that exact line in another song? Yeah. I, didn't have time to go back and vet it or like listen to it like right. through enough times to but even if it's not de- determine that literally it, true it it certainly feels that way it felt they're that rehashing way. some some stuff yeah but when you're writing that many songs it's sure in fact this one being all originals yeah they're already so ingrained with the concept of singing on and writing writing about or singing other people's songs about romantic love that I'm sure a lot of us just going to overflow out of their creative lyrical yeah. content. So to that uh point, it, th- this also kind of broke from their formula a little bit. It has no Ringo song on it and okay. it has no uh no George song that was written by George Harrison. Okay. Uh he sings I'm happy just to dance with you. And then Ringo yeah, Ringo doesn't sing any songs on this. Uh which is really different. I think every other album has a Ringo song. Hmm. And uh, to this point, we've only had one George song, which was Don't Bother Me on the second album. Uh, Moving forward, I believe, without exception, we will have at least one George composition and at least one Ringo, like, lead vocal. Did they have, like, so did John and Paul own the band and, like, George and Ringo owned part of it or like how, how like, I don't think they no I don't didn't think have that any was, that kind of thing yeah okay right. uh, they were all equal contributors kind of thing because they're like what I know is this Lennon and McCartney very early on decided everything that either of us write will be ascribed to both of us we're going to share right we talked about writing that. credits yeah it's cool and then everything else I think was probably more conventional uh, but yeah you see I mean Especially from that Get Back documentary, you'll definitely see some moments of George and Ringo uh, contributing okay. in different ways, and it ends up being a Lennon McCartney song. Okay, but, um, okay, interesting. So that definitely happened, yeah. And to that point of what we're talking about with uh, with the um, lyrical content, my one take, another takeaway from what we're talking about with like the similarity of of content. I was thinking like into the future of songs that I do know that were on later albums. It makes it even more amazing to me that they got there. <laughs> yeah, right? I know. From here I to know. S- some of that stuff. Dude, I keep thinking I wow. keep thinking about what's coming because it's like we're talking about I've been sleeping, you know, I've been working like a dog. I should be sleeping like, like a log, log. But when right. I get home to you, I know the things that you do will make me feel all right. And then fast forward eight years, and it's going to be words are flowing out like endless rain into a paper cup. They like there are all these different, these wildly inventive things that are going to come. Even some of the more simple ones that happen later, they're just not in the same box that these ones are. And you you start to see that box kind of break piece by piece 
from this point moving forward. We're basically watching the Beatles yeah. grow up. We are. This way. That's really what it is. We're, we're seeing that when they start, they're a cover band who are writing some of their originals, and they have something. Now we're seeing them kind of take a turn into their now they're um they're they're kind of shifting into the driver's seat a little bit. And now they're starting to write their songs. They're starting to kind of dictate what their sound is gonna be, dictate where they're gonna go. Yeah, next the next turn after this will kind of be away from live music and devoting all of their time into the studio, uh, which will continue to just kind of drive that creativity. Up to up to eleven. It's amazing. Um, Hit us with some facts about this album. I will, I will. Uh, this was recorded between January 29th and June second, nineteen sixty four. So uh, pretty good four months, basically beginning of February to the beginning of June. I do have this sense with this album, especially it being tied to the film, that their management. I get the sense, and I don't know if there's any truth to this, but it feels like this album was them saying, listen, John, you're delivering the goods, and so we need to bet, we're betting big on this one, and so we got to bet on you. Mm. So we, this is this is like a John Lennon-fueled album. Yes. Both in his vocals and his writing. Over time, this is one of the things to watch for as we go, by the end of the Beatles, John was writing almost none of the music. Wow. And Paul had become the, the supplier of, and George, to a somewhat smaller extent, way more of the of the songwriting. And to the point where at the end, by the time we get to Let It Be, the stuff that's John is super, super John. Hmm. It's his, he likes it to be psychedelic. He likes it to be kind of bluesy. And you see that as it goes into his solo records. He'll continue that. But at this point, it's really interesting when you're used to thinking about things in that way in their later years, when you look back to this, from what I can tell, he was really the primary songwriter, if not the sole songwriter on a lot of these songs, on all the songs on here that he sings, especially. Hmm. I think I read it was like at least, it was either seven or nine of these songs are like John songs where he wrote them and he sang them for the most part. And so his, his identity is just all over this one. Wow. That's cool. That makes sense especially after watching the movie. Maybe this is just like a good dovetail into the movie. Mm, yeah. We should just note that this this movie is, it's an hour and a half. It shares the same title as the album. It's A yep. Hard Day's Night. But John is such a strong personality, his presence. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, he's full of, as as old timers would say, the guy is full of piss and vinegar. There's yeah. no doubt. And, and that type of personality, you can bet, the house on that okay he's gonna deliver charisma mm-hmm. he's gonna be magnetic he's full of energy it's clear in the movie that he has all the qualities of like a rock and roll star yeah right? um he was like the jim morrison the mick jagger right those are the guys in those bands like even though there were su- strong supporting cast it was his his, his thing, thing right yeah. right for sure and I think the movie portrays in even in a very funny way art imitating real life for them that <laughs> yeah. I am sure he was very difficult to manage, you know, like like yeah. he was pushing back on the manager in the movie mm-hmm. often. He had this personal self-awareness of his value, like the value that he brought. He knew 
Like, yeah, yeah, I can do some things. I can get away with some things. They're not going to let me get too far with some of the stuff, but right. I have a stake in this and I have confidence to be able to push back if I need, where I need yeah. to push back. When He's I got really the goods and he knows it. Yeah. So, so that was really, um, yeah, it was, it was interesting, interesting to watch that even though he was playing a, a role or I wouldn't really necessarily say right. a parody of himself, but he was playing a role of himself. Sure, he was to a point, yeah, to yeah, being some kind of a yeah. parody of himself. Yeah. But that's definitely the sense that I get is that that's who he was. He was, he was really funny and he always kind of had maybe the biggest ideas. He was certainly, he certainly had the biggest, I think, creative vision uh, of, of any of them where I think that this leads directly into that on a creative level because I think he got a lot of this stuff kind of out of his system maybe early on. He mm. became really good at writing really big hits. Mm. And he, after a while, it wasn't enough to keep him engaged and interested. It makes sense. Yeah. Why don't we give a little synopsis about the movie? Sure. I'd love to hear you do it. Yeah, okay. You're, I'll you're do it. First time it's my first it. time yeah. seeing it. So yeah. basically we're, we're entering into the life of the Beatles or a day a day in the life of the Beatles where... That's going to come back. So basically, they are on their way traveling to London to record a live studio recording for television yep. um, where they, it seems that they're the headliner and there's some supporting other acts like magicians and dancers and different <laughs> things that are yeah. going to go on before An them. opera. But they're on their way. Yeah. And there's some, I guess you'd call some figures that are in and around their their touring party. Yeah. That uh, they have a Paul's grandfather mm-hmm. who's with them, who is John McCartney. Yes, John McCartney, and he is uh, causing trouble to say the least. To say the least, he <laughs> you know, he sets them on many little adventures just <laughs> just by getting into his own trouble, and they have to pull him out of it. But as they pull him out of it. They're getting themselves in trouble themselves too. So he's a very yeah. bad influence over the Beatles, <laughs> and a big, yeah. big challenge Sometimes for in, the manager. Most of the time, intentionally. Yeah, intentionally. Yeah. I wondered if he was like symbolic of like the devil on the on the shoulder of the Beatles. You <laughs> yeah. know, like he just seemed sure. way too yeah like mischievous, uh, mischievous. Yeah. So they are. And then there's their their manager whose name is Norm, and the and then they're like Rhodey, whose name was. Is it Shane? Shake. 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 Yeah. Shake. We're both actors. That None of these were, other than the Beatles, none of these were the actual people. Right, exactly. And so so basically, we're just watching a parody of all the challenges that come along with tour life, uh, seeing how, and we both having experience in touring, Yeah. they they probably exaggerate some of the, some of the stuff that they get yeah. involved into. Well, maybe not if you're Motley Crue or or, <laughs> or Guns N' Roses, but oh, but like but in general, <laughs> imagine um, the Motley Crue version of this, right? Oh wow, yeah. Um, but I'm you trying are, to stop imagining it. Yeah, I am. I've already my sanctification filter is not allowing <laughs> me to go there. Um, but but basically, the boredom that comes along with tour life sometimes, yeah. right? Like people yeah. don't know, like. Mm-hmm how boring touring can be at times. And so you create these games or things or just stuff to do to keep yourself occupied in Absolutely. between the things. But but then when they have those moments to play their music, they just like step right into that role and they yeah. nail it. But everything that in between, 
Um, it's, it's a just, weird existence, man. It's, it is. It's a very weird thing. Yeah. So watching that unfold, um, I loved, uh, without giving away too much of the scene, there's a scene where they're like being questioned, like interviewed by different reporters and they're just yeah. trying to have a meal yeah. and grab oh, a they drink. Keep, they keep trying to grab yeah. food or drinks and they they can't. They can't. They can't do it, you know? And it, it is so true, right? Like, like people don't <laughs> yeah. realize, like, they have how much eat. they're monopolizing <laughs> the time of just the natural functions of the person for them to be able to do what they want to do, just it's, yeah. to stay, That's great. you know, hydrated or stay, you know, fed, you know? It's really symbolic. It really was. Yeah. So, so, yeah. But at the end of the day, they... You know, I don't think I, I don't think it's wrong to give a spoiler away. You get to no. see the Beatles this perform has been out this. for a while. Yeah, <laughs> um, get to see them perform, and 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 all goes well, and they move on to the next city. Basically, is what happens. So. Yeah, they uh, yeah they get into a helicopter that says Beatles on the side, and they fly away. Yeah, I re- I've seen this movie several times, and I I've always enjoyed it. Uh, I think it's pretty funny. I think like the writing's pretty good. Yeah. I think their acting is pretty good, especially considering that they're a bunch of like young twenty somethings, right? Who like aren't actors. No, like, they're pretty good. They were the delivery good. of the jokes. It's a couple notable exceptions. <laughs> yeah, there was a couple. There was a couple things that made it through uh, without getting left on the cutting room floor or re-edited, like George <laughs> Harrison forgetting words in the song. I was like, that was. Yeah. Yeah. I'm surprised they let that one go, but they're probably like, <laughs> screw it. You know, the yeah. people are going to come pay the money right. to go see they didn't this movie have, anyway. They didn't have Final Cut back then, clearly. No. So they, yeah, we see that. Yeah. Yeah, I love what you just said. It really does stick with me how true to life it can be. I think about, this happened to me yesterday. Okay. Okay. Right, you were in I was, Austin, right? Yes, okay. and so I was playing with a band in Austin, and my day looked like this. I got up at... Four o'clock. Um, we drove to the airport. We caught a flight. Now our flight, luckily, it was a direct flight, but our flight got delayed by two hours, but only incrementally. So we always thought we were about to leave. So we had two extra hours, but we didn't know we had two extra hours. Right. We were I think always it's like thirty minutes. Exactly. So you don't ever. You, there's no time to like settle into something, mm-hmm. right? Uh, oh, I'm, oh, I'm gonna go to the bookstore. Or, oh, I'm gonna go grab a coffee or something. Like you, you don't think you have time. So. You now have two hours into that. We fly into Austin. We get picked up. We stop for lunch. We get to this hotel where we're playing, and our sound guy has to kind of get everything set up. So we kind of set up our things, and then we go to our rooms, and then he says, we'll be ready for you in 10 minutes. And then an hour goes by, and he says, I'll let you know. I'll let you know. An hour goes by. So the same thing happens again. You're just waiting around, and everyone's telling you that you, you're supposed to be here at this time, but no one's ready. So we eventually go down. We sound check for 15 minutes. Now, this is a band that I don't play with regularly, so this is like my practice time. Right. With and them. you're a major band. Like, yeah. It's like a major label band. You know. So I'm like, I wish that I, I would love more time, but we just don't have it because of technical limitations and because we're using other people's in-ear monitors and whatever. So we get a little bit of time to play. We played two songs. Like, we didn't get to run through anything else. Uh, they say that there's, like, a meet and greet, which I didn't have to do because I'm not, like, part of the band. Right. Band band. But that went lasted for an hour. And, again, it's kind of slow and drawn out. A couple people come in at a time. They have they want to meet you one at a time, all that stuff. So I'm just kind of waiting around for that. 
Then there's like an hour. We're finding again, we're finding, oh, we have another hour. Oh, we have another hour. So we finally go on at 8 o'clock p.m. And and you've th- been up since 4. Or actually up, before 4, right? Or about 4. About 4, yeah. okay. So I've been up for, what is it? So that's 16 hours so far. And I am just then able to like actually play and sing. Man. Like that's the first time other than those two songs in Soundcheck. And that was much more technical. It was much more get, about getting our monitors all right. It's so funny being, I don't, I barely tour anymore. I barely do this anymore. I'm mostly in the studio. But like seeing this movie the day after doing that is really hitting home. Right. Because them running away, they're basically doing it every, every turn. Day. Their manager is trying to like put them in a room and say, don't leave. And then they leave every time. They find a way to like circumvent right. his surveillance <laughs> and run. And I get it. Like, yeah. I'm looking at it. I'm like, you don't have to be famous like the Beatles to be, get to that point where you just feel you're like, I got to run. I, I can't. You telling me I need to be in this room for an hour, and I, I'm not going to stay sane if you keep telling me that. And you're telling me that we're always about to be doing something, and then we never actually do it. So much dead time. And so you do end up kind of being like, just finding your spots. The thing I thought most kind of poignant was the point where Ringo, near the end, he goes off with his camera and he starts taking pictures. Yeah. And, like, that's the kind of thing. You'll find a lot of people who go on tour that they find a thing that they can do. Sometimes it's running or or cycling or visit. Like, for me, I like to visit bookstores and record shops and that kind of thing so that if you have that time during the day, you can kind of do something that's not just waiting around in a room. And it grounds you to like who you are too. And it's yeah. like it anchors you yeah. in some form of reality that exists outside of this limbo of touring life. And this one hour of the right. day where you're going to actually do the thing that you're supposed to do or that you're right. known for doing. Right. Yeah, it's so much of that. So yeah, there's, it was a great time for me to kind of see that. I definitely felt, I was like, oh man, this is totally what they're going for. They're, they want to kind of communicate that to us, that this is how they feel. Right. They're being constantly chased and they're constantly being shut into a room and being told to stay there and then having to find ways of like getting around that. Right. Because they'll show up at the end. They show up at the, in, the nick of, in the nick of time. They play it goes great. Everybody loves it. They know that they can do that. And like yesterday, we felt the same way, kind of. Now right. we're not the Beatles, but like we knew, hey, when it's time for us to play, we're going to show up and we're going to deliver. We're going to sound great. We have confidence in ourselves. All the details up until that point kind of don't matter. Right. All that matters is that we can hear ourselves. Right. And that's it. And we know we'll be able to figure it out. Can we talk about Ringo for a second? Like Because yeah. actually Ringo was my... F- I realized as I was watching this, yeah. Ringo was my favorite Beatle. Yeah. Uh, I think primarily because I mean, he, he seemed to have an old soul, and they really like, yeah. really sort of exaggerated the fact that the other guys are busting his chops for not being all that interested in like chasing after girls or like, you know, yeah. grabbing a drink or whatever. But he just like that scene where he was walking with that kid, yeah. taking pictures and having fun with this kid. Yeah. I was like, that's just. <laughs> it was just wholesome. I felt like Ringo was yeah. a wholesome guy, you know? And uh, Absolutely. It was really, I, I really enjoyed that portrayal. Not just that portrayal. I think yeah. it was actually really probably close to who he is, actually. He was he was oldest. Okay. And he was the, the last to join the band. So mm-hmm. I feel like both of those may have some bearing on that as well, where he was a little more mature and a little less maybe involved. Mm-hmm. 
relationship wise with those other with the other three guys. Man. And to that point too, like I, I think as you're watching it, they're they're not good enough actors to take <laughs> on a different persona, right? So <laughs> right. their actual characteristics and personalities yeah. may have been exaggerated some, but it transcended the film. And yes. so you're getting a probably pretty accurate depiction of of who they might be in char- characteristic wise, yeah. right? So as I was watching Ringo, I was thinking, wow, th- this is like an interesting yin and yang sort of balance to all members of this band as contributors. Because yeah. him, you, for to John's wildness or mischief or, yeah. you know, guts. Yeah, they're had, the two poles right. for sure. You, yeah. Then you need that, that like grounding or yeah. anchor and like te- something to temper that, you know? Yeah. So I really... I really thought that was that was neat to see a band dynamic that was able to work so well. But to that point, I bet you know sometimes. Well, that I've heard the saying like some someone's strengths can also be their greatest like weakness, right? So sure. like as we take this journey and continuing to go down, I'm yeah. going to be interested as an observer yeah. listener to see how these things unfold and play out in terms of band dynamics eventually, because you know. It can't last forever, right? So, <laughs> no. And we know it didn't. I think what, what anyone who's watched that Get Back documentary, which will probably kind of cap off our, our experience here, what's interesting is how what the way that you just described Ringo is basically who he is six years later at that point. Hmm. There are just so many points in that seven-hour documentary where you see him be that. He's just kind of the steady guy. He shows up on time. He knows it. He's like, I'm always on time. Like, he says that in the first episode. <laughs> Isn't that It's like the pun in that, too. He's like, yeah, it's right. so great. He's a, a drummer. drummer. Yeah. <laughs> and they all know it. Like, Paul's like, yeah, Ringo's a pro. And again, John's dynamic. His will probably change the most hmm. over the course of the, of the band. You'll see his, his change. The other two will grow in different ways. But, yeah, like, Ringo really stays that I think the whole way through because I think he's not tied. His ego, I think, is not as tied to what he's doing as much as these other guys. I think he realizes that he got kind of looped into this thing at the last minute before it really took off. Mm-hmm. And he's like, yeah, I mean, I got it pretty sweet. Yeah, I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing and, and showing up and getting the paycheck and being part of this thing and I'm not gonna complain. I get I get to sing one song a night, one song an album. Yeah, <laughs> like you know, and it feels. I mean, now that's kind of still his persona. Like, right. He's this dude who's just like he's always kind of showing gratitude to people and always has a super like positive outlook. Sometimes annoyingly so. I think he's he always kind of is looking on the bright side of things. But he's like, yeah, he's that seems like who he still is as an old old man. That's awesome. Yeah. Can we talk? We got to talk about one more thing before we yeah. wrap this up about this movie. Um, I was amazed at the sheer amount of people that fell down <laughs> chasing these yes. guys, including the the Beatles themselves. Yeah, right in the first yeah. scene, right out of the gate. Yeah, like the, the first Beatles shot of the movie, <laughs> take a header right onto concrete. Like, <laughs> yeah, and they left. I think it it's in. George goes down and Ringo trips over him and it looks bad it does look bad i'm like <laughs> there's definitely like some minor injury or abrasion <laughs> happening on scrapes, that yeah. one no doubt <laughs> but i mean they 
the the people that were probably brought in as extras yeah. were legitimate fans. There's no doubt about that. There's no way that they were just like movie act, a, actors right. that were they, yeah. that were extras. There must have been some something that was put out like, yeah. hey, we're making a movie about the Beatles. At the very least, there was a healthy amount of overlap yes. between the the extras and the fans. And the yeah. last last scene in the movie is I think it's just from a concert. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but. There is definitely two <laughs> other scenes where women are chasing these these young men, and yeah. one girl had heels on, and she clearly broke her ankle when she went down. So I was like, "Man, uh, what would I even call it? the fanaticism that surrounded these guys?" Like, very very seldomly do you see that type of like like <laughs> yeah. worship, basically of. Yeah of an artist, but this was on a level where people were just overcome with mm. emotions that I can't yeah. even understand. I've never even been in that state in my entire I, life. I know. I, I feel that it's completely foreign to me. I can think about the things that I've loved the most in my life, and mm -hmm. I'm like, I didn't love it that much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, it's different. I don't know what it is. All right, so we just watched... I want to hold your hand on the Ed Sullivan Show, February 9th, 1964. And uh, 78 million people watched that. Wow. Wow. That night or on YouTube? That night. Okay, wow. In 1964. <laughs> <laughs> On that was a really dumb question. No, but, but it's, it's funny worth asking. Well, the crazy thing, what made me take a, a pause was that, like, that's a lot of views now. Right. That's what I was like. <laughs> 70, what's that even? 78 million televisions? Like, apparently so. So, like, that, I mean, it well, that was by far the most watched thing in history at that point. It would be surpassed in, in years to come by different things, but. For I think for a long time actually that that stood the second so they 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 came back uh, I think two two weeks later and played on Ed Sullivan again and it was about seventy million wow. that second time Man. so like that's the thing that's that's the story you know that my dad tells about about seeing that happen on on live TV and that was the moment February 9th, nineteen sixty three was kind of the injection point of. Hmm. Of the the height the height of that of this kind of Beatlemania and the world seeing it and just I think being in that and that at that time to imagine watching that on TV and hearing the screaming that's one thing I hadn't really thought about like being at home and hearing that like thinking what what's going on right this is what <laughs> right why are they doing that right this this is the most exciting thing in the world. It's amazing. You know, I have to say, we're, we're not going down conspiracy trails. We already yeah. talked about that. But but we'll entertain, we'll brush up against as many as we want to. Right. Let's just say that just in general, that was a very difficult time for America if J JFK's yep. assassination, right? Yes. So you're saying that that happened prior to the release of that song, right, in, in America? But not too much, not, not too long, right? Like that happened a week before. Okay, seven days. Right. So, hey everybody, this is later Joel uh, coming in to make some clarifications. Some of these dates got mentioned in a very confusing order, and so I just wanted to clarify that uh, the 
release date for I Want to Hold Your Hand in America was actually December 26th, and then the Ed Sullivan Show, uh, as said previously, was February 9th, not a week after the assassination of JFK. So the song was released about a month after it happened in the U.S. Back to you guys. It's Sometimes you need a commercial break from heaviness, right? And so you're, I mean, God, you're in- God, God bless the Beatles that like something lifted the spirits of young America to like be able not move past it, you know, because some wounds are deep, right? And yeah. you can't ignore those wounds and you have to heal from those things. But um, what a blessing it probably was in a sense for a lot of people mm-hmm. mentally just for a moment to check out and just have Absolutely. something else they could fixate their thoughts and feel good about for a little bit. So You are not the first person to make that. Hmm. And, I'm, and I love that you connected those dots immediately. That is the reason why there's... I think I said last time there are two halves to the equation of what made the Beatles who they were. There was the opportunity and the kind of the zeitgeist at the time, and then there's who they were as people and as as musicians and as creatives. And it could have been anybody. Like America needed something at yeah. that moment, like you said. Like, in. and they were the perfect kind of. They soaked up that energy. Yeah, it was a bleak time, and people were scared. And they needed that thing. But it just so happened that the guys that were there at that moment happened to be people who were capable of pushing writing and recording of music several steps ahead. And that's kind of the real magic of it, is that those two things happened simultaneously. It could have been the Monkees. It could have been the Dave Clark Five. It could have been Mamas and the Papas. It could have been whoever Mamas and the Papas was a little later. Uh, but like it could have been any of those people, but the fact that it was these guys at that moment—that's that's what it is. That's, Man, and to to their credit, let's just say this: like, I'm not saying that there was divine influence in in the uh, in the Beatles, you know, being being the ones that were able to right. carry this load, right? But look at how many people have been such massive, massive successes. And the effect that it had on them mentally, right? That they couldn't carry this yeah. responsibility, essentially, of like their art becoming bigger than them. Right. You know, Kurt Cobain Michael took Jackson. a shotgun to himself. Michael Jackson yeah. started collecting apes and put an amusement park <laughs> on his property, right? Absolutely. Like, you can go right off the rails. I know in some senses they might have like explored drug use and different things that, that they happened, but yeah. for, for the most part, these guys did an exceptional job of carrying yeah. the load and never really going to a place. And I'm sure it was really difficult, and they certainly had their things. You know, they, they all had excesses for sure. They lived the rock star life, definitely in a way that's probably severely unhealthy. Uh, but, yeah, if you look at the long term, they ended up being able to be way more well-adjusted than I think a lot of people probably deserve to be. Yeah, sure. Who were put in that situation. Totally, man. So finally, I want to talk about I Feel Fine. I Feel Fine was recorded on October 18th, 1964, and was released November 23rd, 1964. So this happened, this is now basically the next, what happened with Our Hard Day's Night was that several songs were singled off of that album. Okay. So you get... uh, uh, Can't Buy Me Love goes to number one. 
Hard Day's Night, Ghost of Number One. Those are both on the album, though. So that's kind of where they, those were kind of our number ones on the charts from the beginning of that year when Ed Sullivan hit after I Want to Hold Your Hand mm -hmm. to this point. So this comes out at the end of the year, November 23rd, basically exactly a year after I Want to Hold Your Hand. Okay. Like it was one day later. This, I'm so excited about this, Ian. Okay. I'm so excited. Because this, brother. for me, this is the the next chapter being, we're, we're peeking open the door and we're seeing where we're going. Mm. And it's it's something really different. And it's something that looks a lot more like the music that we make mm. and that we know. And so we get to see that here. So we're going to listen to I Feel Fine. All right. That right there. Yeah, that's the first time the they harmonies. do a three part, right? Yeah. Not the first time, but it's right up front. Okay. Man, so real talk, real talk, my first takeaway from that when I heard it yeah. uh, on my assignment was. This is my favorite thing that I've heard so far from the Beatles. Yeah. Actually. Yeah. No no disrespect to right. uh, hold your hand, but I was like, oh, this is this is something that I can listen to and like I would go back and listen to. No offense to the other material. Yeah. Um, but this was like, oh, okay, mm -hmm. I'm starting to really start to get this. This song for me starts to starts to separate them from this formula that they've used so far. Where they've had, you know, the verse, chorus, verse, chorus, one singer or two singers. Uh, the lyrics are usually the same, you know, about the same things. This one, the lyrics obviously aren't like a huge step forward, but I think about that, the melody and like. Like it's this syncopated, it's kind of, it goes across the bar lines. It's like, it's a long musical phrase and it's, it's repetitive and it's different and it feels kind of visceral to me and kind of like, this is, isn't just them singing like a cute kind of melody or like a, or like a Chuck Berry song. This is right. like something different. This feels new. It feels like something that didn't exist yet. That main riff, that's John. Okay. And uh, uh, apparently he he just made the riff up, and he there's an earlier recording session. I may have been "Hold Your Hand," I don't know, where he was he kind of made this riff up, and in between takes he'd be playing it. You'd already hear him kind of working on it. That's cool. And they were like, "Hey, that's cool." And so he, I think he wrote this whole song by himself, and it was basically around that riff. He just wanted to find a way to like turn that into a song, and uh, so. So he did. Uh, the note at the beginning, it's one of the most, it's one of the first times feedback was ever used in any kind of musical way in recorded music. Interesting. Certainly probably, it's probably the most prominent at that, at that point. Most people probably didn't know what that sound was. And uh, what it was, was John had like a hollow body electric guitar. It was leaning against Paul's bass amp. <laughs> and so Paul, it was an accident, of course, at first, and then they thought, oh, that really sounds cool. If if Paul plays a note in his bass, it resonates 
John's guitar so much that it starts to just feedback. Feedback? Wow, that's cool. And so they did it on purpose. It's an A note, and uh, yeah, like that's right from the start. I mean, that's we're going to hear some stuff that they do later, especially kind of the Eastern. It kind of almost sounds like a sitar. Right. But like I hear that, and I'm like, this sounds like uh, Rubber Soul. This sounds like uh, it sounds like Revolver. And what a beautiful, like, in a sense, that sets a trajectory for the enjoyment of recording, too, when you actually, like, are discovering things yeah. by accident. That yeah. are just, you're trying to capture something special that's happening in the moment, right? I think that's one of the most beautiful things about recording. Yeah. And them doing that and us being the beneficiary as listeners Absolutely. One of the things I love about recorded music, you know. Yeah, that that process of discovery, they're going to lean a lot into that as we go. So main takeaways for today. Yeah. I think for me, this song is really important because I think that this, I feel fine, shows us where, where like I said, where we're heading. And it feels like, um, like you said, this is your first instinct was like, this is the best thing that I've heard so far out of this. And... Yeah, we're going to hear more stuff that I think I think for you is going to be f- more fun to listen to. Yeah. I think this is almost we're almost at the end of the, their first kind of era. Okay. I'd say there are kind of three I think eras of the Beatles which is beginning, middle and late and I think once once we get through the next album Beatles for Sale We'll probably do the next one after that, which I believe is Rubber Soul, okay. if I'm not mistaken. Right. If not Revolver, I think it's Rubber Soul. Uh, but we will we'll do those next two together. Okay. My main takeaway from from this like session talking about it is we're seeing them rise to the challenge of what they're doing. They're they're again and they're they're leaning on John hard and pay attention to that because I think that's a huge part of the story. I think, again, him writing most of this album, which to this point is their biggest album, one of the biggest albums ever, and they're leaning on John to write the songs, to sing the songs. And he's rising to the challenge. He's delivering these songs. Uh, And it'll have a cost, I think, at some point, as we'll see later, opposed to the other guys who aren't going to feel this kind of pressure. But... It's really interesting to know where it goes and to come back and see, oh, wow, John was the one who was like, it was his band. Hmm. And to see where that goes, as I've kind of teased out already later, is really, I think, an interesting kind of drama Man, of this. Very cool. What are, what are your main takeaways from, We're just, from today? Like you said, it's like, it's like reading a novel, watching a story unfold that we're, we're getting to have this journey. Yeah, watching this band grow up, and I think that there's actually in the in the middle of all this, I think that there's some like valuable life lessons that we Absolutely. can glean from and gain wisdom through looking at it from this perspective, not just about music but about life in general. Yeah. So I'm excited to continue on this journey together as we yeah. mine this catalog of yeah Beatles history and Beatles music. Well, right. listeners. We just want to thank you for joining us again today. This has been a fun, very fun conversation for me. Um, hey, let's just um, let's just take some encouragement from the words of of John Lennon today. That if if there is somebody that you want to ask to hold their hand, you got that feeling towards them, 
maybe you should just say, hey, I want to hold your hand. I want to hold your hand. I want to hold your hand, okay? So get some boldness. Go out there and do the thing. You might not know where it leads you. You might get slapped in the face, (laughs) or you might marry that person. But give it a shot, all right? Uh, Just for homework, for if people want to listen along. Yeah. I, I made a crucial error, and I didn't... I forgot that the next album is Help, which is a pretty significant, which is going to be great to listen to. Boy, can you imagine the squirming and listeners that know the Beatles? Oh my, yeah, they were, we apologize to put, you guys. Put the pitchforks away yep. in the, and extinguish those torches. I was wrong, and I'll be the first to admit it. Okay. And matter of fact, if you remember back, I was the first to admit it. Yes. Uh, <laughs> he owned it. But if you got a problem, then you're coming through me, Buster. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate you having my back. Yep. So, Beatles for Sale and Help. Okay, those are the two albums. Help is another movie. Okay. I don't know if we're going to watch I've watched it a couple times. Is that the I one where they like lay in the snow or something? Like, I feel yeah. like, okay, mm-hmm. all right. Yeah, right. right oh, there. okay. Yeah, I see it. Beatles for Sale, Help. We'll be covering those two. And then honestly, honestly, Ian. Yeah. I think we may from this point on only be going one album per episode. We say it isn't so. I think we will. All because right. I, I, I don't think we're going to have enough time to to examine two of these at a time. Okay. I'm just, I'm, I'm throwing that out there. I'm, I'm proclaiming that over this. Okay. I'm ready. I'm ready for this. I'm loving every minute of it. All right. Love it. All right. See you all next time. See ya. <laughs>